Um, at City Light, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Um, so we're reading from Acts chapter 20 this morning. <clears throat> it's a bit of a longer one again, so buckle in. It's Acts 20 verse 17 to 38. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord, of, the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to all my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on their part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the words that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor. And um, it's great to have you with us this morning as we continue through the book of Acts, whether this is your first time in church uh, or the first time back for a while, or whether you're with us week in and week out. It's, um, it's great to be able to dive into the book of Acts. As we sort of get to the latter part, and as Paul's ministry starts to head toward its conclusion. And so I'm going to pray that now as we hear this address where Paul basically is saying goodbye to a bunch of people that he has led to faith, and as he tells them, basically his, these are kind of his last words, knowing that he probably won't see them again, given that because of his ministry and the gospel, he's probably going to meet an early death. He, he kind of gives his last will and testament to this church to encourage them to press on for Jesus. So I'm going to pray that we'd be encouraged this morning as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the gospel, we are made safe in Christ, eternally safe that our lives are secured in Him, 
that as we are forgiven and washed clean and made new and brought into relationship with you, that we have life indestructible and that this leads us to live lives to serve others. And so, Father, we pray that as we open your word this morning that we would see your truth with new depth and that it would move us to love like Christ, to love with self-sacrificial love and all for the sake of your holy name. Amen. It is strange that in a few particular areas that the safe thing is not always the right thing to do. There is sometimes certain areas of life where the most loving thing to do is at the same time the risky kind of thing. Back when I was a kid, playgrounds at schools were crazy. We used to have this thing, and it wasn't that far from here. It was at a school about 10 minutes away from here. We used to have a thing called the pyramid. And it was what it sounds like. It was a pyramid. And it was probably only about 12 feet tall, but in, in my mind, thinking back as a child, it was like 90 meters high. But anyway, it was probably more around like sort of 12, 14 feet. But it was basically concentric squares, kind of like log squares that would go around all the way to the top. And at the top, there was a pole that went straight down. And so the idea was you get to the top and then you slide down. But of course, kids always want to optimize these things. And so you'd race up them or you'd be like pushing your friends off them as you get to the top. And because you're trying to get down as fast as you can, you pretty much just plummet from the top to the bottom whilst roughly touching the pole on the way down. And that, that one like schoolyard item claimed many arms and legs over the years that I was there. Uh, sorry, as in like broken, not, no, one, no one had their limbs amputated. It wasn't that, it wasn't that hardcore. But that's nothing on what I'm about to tell you next. That it's the case that at that time, as kids, we were allowed to bring deadly weapons to school. And what's even more shocking than that is that most kids brought it, and not only did the kids bring it, but the parents encouraged it. And this one thing could literally take the life of another child. And you know what it is? It's peanuts. Peanuts back in the day were legal. Back then, we didn't know that we were carrying around in our little lunchboxes weapons-grade plutonium. We had no idea, but now we do. And it's often the case that at a school, some hapless dad who's responsible for lunchboxes that morning will lose his mind and put in some trail mix or a muesli bar, not doing the calculations and realizing that there's peanuts involved. And the whole school will go DEFCON 5 and a hazmat team will have to come out and the kids will have to get all their heads shaved and get sent home in those raincoat hazmat suits. And, uh, and then we start all over again. But of course, obviously, you know, that's not exactly what happens. But it is weird, like if you were born, what, maybe after 2000, you wouldn't even know that there was a time when those things were actually common at school. And it is the case that the doctors have noticed the same thing, that since the 90s, peanut allergies have actually been increasing. And so in 2015, a team or a project called the Learning Early About Peanut Allergies Group did a study to work out... <laughs> well, that wasn't a joke, but that's... <laughs> That's what they were called. They actually did a study, so they had 640 participants, and they took half of them from infancy, and they said, this group are going to be raised in kind of a, like, with exposure to peanuts and that sort of thing, and this group will be raised without it, and we'll see what the results are. Because what had happened from the 90s through to the 2000s, around 2008, is that peanut allergies had gone from being like 4 in 1,000 to 14 in 1,000, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's... 300% or more than increase. 
And so what they found in these two groups was, of those that grew up around peanuts and with exposure to them, about 3% developed the allergy. But in the group without, it was 17%. And you think how counterintuitive that is. That actually, it seemed like, because this is such a serious thing, an anaphylactic response to peanuts, because it's so significant, you think the right thing to do is to ban them. And yet, counterintuitively, it actually ended up producing more allergies and actually putting more kids in danger. And that's not to say that the solution now is easy or whatever. We leave that to the medical experts. But isn't it interesting that sometimes the loving thing to do seems like the risky thing to do? That there are some occasions when actually to play it safe is more dangerous. And Paul is going to say that here, that for those who follow Jesus Christ, that risk is going to be a part of your life. That actually love will take risks for the good of others. That it's not the case that to play it safe is always the way to go. That there are situations in which to play for your own safety is going to put others at risk. And so the loving thing to do will be the risky thing to do. And here, he's going to start by calling the leaders of the church together to tell them and to lay out how his life has demonstrated this very principle. That to be loving is to take risks for the good of others. And he starts here in sentence 2017 by calling the leaders to him. Look what it says in Acts 2017. It says, Now from my leaders he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So Ephesus, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, was a place in Asia Minor in the Bible, which is modern-day Turkey now. And it's in the, on the kind of western side of it. And he was in Ephesus for two years preaching and teaching, and we're told that during that time that pretty much the whole of Asia, the whole of Turkey, heard about Jesus. But then Paul moves down to a place called Miletus, which is just south of Ephesus. And while he's there, he's about to depart, but before he goes, he says, look, get all of the leaders down here. I want to tell them something before I go. And so he calls them all down to him. And then he gives them this speech, which is kind of his farewell speech to them. The last thing that he will say to them. And this is what he says, starting in sentence 18. It says, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life as of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only that I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says to these Ephesian leaders, these elders, he says, Look, you, you know that I came to you in humility. 
I didn't come with a whole fanfare. I didn't come with the ticker tape parade. People weren't lining up to hear me speak. I didn't get paid huge sums of money. I didn't get speaker's fees. He said, I came to you in humility. And not only that, he says, I came to you in tears and in trials. That is, when he got to Ephesus, it's because he had fled the previous cities he was in as people sought his life. He says, I didn't come to you as some kind of big shot. I came to you in humility. And not only that, he says, I had every reason to change the message that I was bringing to you. This message that had caused me to be chased out of every town that I'd been in so far. And he says, but I did not shrink back. I wasn't cowardly. I didn't change the message. I didn't stop talking about it. I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And he says it again at the end. He says, I didn't shrink back from teaching you the whole counsel of God. Paul's ministry, as explained in in chapter 20, verse 24, was to testify to the gospel of grace. That is to tell people about Jesus. That Jesus was God who had come as a man. He had lived the righteous life that we were meant to live. He died a death in our place and he rose again. But he says also, I didn't shrink back from teaching you anything that was profitable anything at all. What does he mean by this expression? The idea that he taught the whole counsel of God, that he didn't shrink back from teaching anything that was profitable. What it means is that he taught them all of Scripture. When Paul writes a letter to Timothy, who is an elder in Ephesus, and he writes two letters later on in the Bible, you can read them in 1 and 2 Timothy, he writes to him in 2 Timothy 3.16, For all Scripture is God-breathed, and profitable, there's that word again, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All Scripture is from God, and all of it is profitable. But if Paul's job was just to teach the gospel, if his ministry was to tell people about Jesus, why did he have to tell them about all of Scripture as well? Well, Because to understand the gospel, you need to understand the whole thing, the whole story of the Bible. The Bible isn't a bunch of disconnected stories or letters. It's one unified story from beginning to end that leads to Jesus. And so if Paul is to teach them about Jesus, he has to teach them everything else as well. That it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg. If you really want to understand the full scale of it, you've got to see what's beneath the water as well. That's why when Jesus rose from the dead and he met his disciples on the road to Emmaus, what did he do? He began teaching them, Luke tells us, about how all of Scripture is about Him, starting with the prophets. All of Scripture is about Jesus. So Paul says, I didn't shrink back from teaching you anything that's profitable because all of it is from God and all of it matters. And so he teaches them. And the reason he does it, he says, is for the good of others, so that they wouldn't be endangered. Look what he says in 26 and 27. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul had every reason to just cut a few corners, to cut out some of the bits from Scripture and about the gospel that were most upsetting or were the kind of things that were likely to get him chased out of town. But he didn't. And the reason he says he didn't was so that his blood would, their blood would not be on his head. That is, if he were to not tell them the truth about who Jesus is, if he wasn't to lay out the full gospel, then it would be on his head. 
He feels responsible to do it. Because to not hear the gospel is to not have a chance to respond to the message of forgiveness and to be saved forever. That if Paul actually shrank back from sharing the gospel, it would have endangered the lives of others. So he has to teach the full counsel of God. Otherwise, he says, I'd be, I'd be guilty of shrinking back. But he says, because I've taught them everything, he says, the blood getter was not in my head. I've told you absolutely everything. I shrunk back from nothing. I held back nothing. He didn't come to them as a velvet-mouthed preacher who was just going to share things that people wanted to hear or to say things that would get people to like him. He says, I came with a message of truth and I preached it all. I laid it all out on the line. See, there are times when you're responsible to take a risk in order to prevent a greater risk to someone else. If you're a lifeguard, you must risk your life to save the lives of others. And the reason you're called to do it in certain situations is because you have the training and the skill. It's actually less risky for you to go out there and to save someone who's drowning who doesn't have the skill to save themselves. Now, there are exceptions to this. When the lifeguards close the beach... They are responsible for telling everyone, hey, the beach is closed. You cannot go in there. If you go in there, we're not coming in after you. They're responsible to do that. But it is the case that they're called to take these risks for the, for the sake of others because it's more safe for them to do so. And this is what Paul says about his ministry. He says, because I ultimately am eternally safe in Christ Jesus, and even though it might cost me my life, it's actually less risky for me to tell you the truth than to not tell you the truth and risk all of you not knowing Jesus and facing the judgment of God alone. And so he does it. And what empowers him to do it is that he understands that his life is with Christ. Look what he says in sentence 24. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. Now that, that line on its own almost sounds quite dark. He says, I don't value my life at all. And you could be tempted to think, well, maybe that's because Paul was a guy who used to persecute and kill Christians. And so maybe he feels like, you know, I've, I've kind of done so much damage that my life's worth nothing and I'm happy to lay my life down for others. He's kind of like a Clint Eastwood character. You know, he's got a murky past, but he has one last act of redemption in which he dies and does something good finally. But that's not what's going on here for Paul. Paul isn't trying to go out in some blaze of glory to make up for all of his past mistakes. No, he says, I don't account my life as anything because of who Jesus is. Look what he says as we finish off sentence 24. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only that I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What he means here is there's something that's even more important than his own life. That is to tell people the gospel. That this matters more even than his own living. And because of this, he has a love and a courage about him that's not just self-destructive. His desire is to serve people and to tell them about Jesus that they might find the eternal security that he has found himself. He knows the risks he knows that he's been close to death many times before and that God has held on to his very life. And he knows that God has put him on this earth to declare the gospel and he knows that until the day that Jesus decides to take him home, that he is indestructible. 
Henry Martin once said, You are immortal until God's purpose in you is complete. You catch that? You are immortal until God's purpose in you is complete. This is what Paul means. This is the basis of his courage. This is what he means when he says, I don't account my life as anything, but I'm just here to share about Jesus. I'm just here to tell people who Jesus is and the life that they can have in him. And so he preaches the gospel because if he doesn't, there is no way, no other name by which people may be saved. And so it's the lesser risk for him. And so he continues. And just as we reflect on this, might it be our prayer that we would, have, that we would be so captured by a vision of Christ that it would lead us to live like Paul does. That we would treasure Christ in our lives like this. To know that Christ is my life and I am hidden with him. To know this is my Savior who himself did not regard his life as precious but laid it down for mine. That the Son of God who owed me nothing died in my place that I might have life eternal in him. That I might have the love of the Father that we might receive the Holy Spirit. Just think on this that when you pass away you will meet your Savior face to face and he will welcome you into eternal joy. This is the vision that so captured Paul's heart that he's like, look, even while I was here in Ephesus, I didn't shrink back from telling you anything. I didn't account my own life as precious or the opinions of others as precious. He's like, I laid down my life just to serve you guys and to tell you about Jesus. And so he encourages the leaders to be of the same mind. As he gathers the elders of the church in Ephesus, he says, you guys are to do the exact same thing. And he says, and while you're doing this, Watch out for wolves who are the opposite. Look what he warns in Acts 20, 28 to 35. He starts by saying, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He says to the leaders of the church, Watch out. Because not everyone who wants to lead should lead. That there are some who want to get into positions of power not to serve others or to lay down their lives for the good of others, but actually leaders who are happy to let others suffer for their own good. And he calls them wolves. And this is the opposite to shepherds. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, gathered his people together and he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And this was meant to be the model of Christian leadership that was then passed on to each generation. That Christ himself led in, as an example. That if the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, then those who were to lead his people were to be of the same mind, willing to sacrifice and suffer for the good of others, rather than to cause other people to suffer and to sacrifice for their own good. But he says wolves are the opposite. They don't protect they don't lay down their lives. They're willing to take a life for their own gain. And here he says to these leaders, watch out. Be careful. Pay attention. Because some people will come in saying that they follow Christ, that they want to lead and serve his people, and yet their desire will be the opposite. And he says that they will do three things. And the first one is that they will do the opposite to Paul. Instead of teaching the whole counsel of God, Instead of speaking the truth of God plainly, he says they will twist the truth. 
Look what he says in 30 and 32. He says, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for these three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you to God and to his word of grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. He says the first mark of a wolf is that they will twist the word of God. They won't preach something entirely opposite. They'll take the word of God, but they will twist it and distort it. They'll speak only what is for their own benefit. And that may come in the form of them changing the word of God so that people will, will listen to them and like them. In his letter to Timothy, he also warns him, he says, look, in the latter days there are going to be false teachers who come along and they'll teach people whatever their itching ears want to hear. It's definitely the case that if you want to, you can find someone with a PhD who will tell you anything you want to hear about the Bible. They can take any passage and say, I know plainly it seems like it's saying this, but if you just squint a little and turn your head to the side, you'll see that it actually says the complete opposite. And they'll be able to offer you an entire PhD thesis on this very topic. But Paul says, they're wolves. They distort the word of God. They change it for their own gain. Whether that's financial gain, whether that's the gain of gaining an audience and status and power, they won't teach the full gospel. They won't teach the full counsel of God. They will change and distort things for their own gain. And he says, and with this, they'll be happy to imperil the lives of others, even for their own gain. They're happy to distort the gospel, even though that might mean that people don't hear the gospel fully and don't come to salvation and that their souls are in peril. They don't care because that's not their purpose. Their purpose is for their own gain. Paul says to the elders, watch out for wolves. They will twist the word of God. But then the other two things, he kind of does the opposite way by, by commending his own ministry. Look at what he says. In 20, 33 and 34, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You know yourselves that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Those who are to follow in the footsteps of Christ will not do it for financial gain. Wolves, on the other hand, will do it for financial gain. There'll be those who step up to lead because it will mean that they can extract money from people and that they can get rich off it. That this was something even the early church had to contend with. It was common in the ancient world for itinerant speakers who moved around to take a speaker's fee and to build kind of a life and a ministry from just going around speaking and receiving money for speaking. But Paul says here, when he came to Ephesus, he didn't take any money from anyone. He says, you know that these hands, his own hands, he used to labor. We saw weeks ago that he built tents and worked leather. He paid for his own way to demonstrate to these people that he wasn't going to take anything from them. And it's still the case today. When missionaries go out to a new mission field, they go with the support of the church, but they don't go to take from the people who are there. They come to bring the gospel for free. Paul says those leaders who follow in the image of Christ and in the model of Christ will do it not for financial gain, but wolves do. There's an account, and I don't know whether it's, it's half funny and half sad, but there's an account called Preachers and Sneakers. And it's run by a guy who's a sneakerhead, so he's, he is all across just expensive trainers and what they cost and how much they cost and all of this. But the account started because he saw a prominent minister 
in another country up on stage and he's like, I know those trainers. And I'm pretty sure they're like, they're worth well north of like two or three K. And when he looked it up, they were. And so he started an account basically calling out all of these preachers who are up there in absolutely minted outfits, whose shoes are worth more than most of our incomes over whatever, however weeks or months. And he did it partly kind of tongue-in-cheek, but also as a Christian brother who was concerned about the kind of salaries that maybe some of these pastors were on. There's a warning all through Scripture about the dangers of money and wealth, but so much more so for those who lead. It is not to be about financial gain. Wolves will do it, will say anything you want to hear in order to take money from you. And Paul says this is not the way of those who follow Christ. It's not the model he left for the leaders in the church in Ephesus. He says, I didn't come to get money from you. I lived humbly among you. And then lastly, those who lead in the footsteps of Christ will serve the weak rather than take advantage of the weak. Look how he finishes his speech. He says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Instead of taking from the people he gave, he served, he laid down his life as those who follow in the footsteps of Christ should. But wolves come to take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. But those who are of Christ are here to serve the weak and the vulnerable. And it's also the case that when wolves depart, the church rejoices. Even though over the years there's been scandal after scandal, when a wolf who is claimed to be a leader of the people of God, is exposed, while it's a dark moment, in the end, it's the beginning of healing and restoration. And when wolves depart, the people rejoice. When a wolf is found out and their life is exposed, it's a source of rejoicing. But here, when Paul serves these people and he leaves, they weep. Because he has served like Christ and he has served faithfully in the ministry. And look at the sorrow with which he departs. Look what happens when he goes. It says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrow most of all because of the word he had spoken, that he they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is what you call in the book of Acts a gospel goodbye. Can you imagine this moment that this is the guy who first shared the word of God with these leaders and they, all of them, had had their lives completely turned upside down. They were a part of that group of people in Ephesus whose lives were so gripped by the gospel that they got rid of their, their books of magic and their amulets and their statues to the goddess Artemis. They threw them out and Paul had completely turned their lives around. And not Paul but the message of Jesus. And not only this, they'd been a part of this gospel movement that had turned their city upside down to the extent that it had caused a riot because people were so annoyed that no one was buying all this stuff for the Temple of Artemis anymore that they wanted to get rid of these Christians. These brothers have stood shoulder to shoulder. And here he's going. And he's telling them as well, and they seem to know it from the way that he's saying goodbye, that they're probably not going to see him again. And there weren't ways of keeping in touch. There wasn't social media to know what happens from there on. The churches stayed connected. 
and through the letters of Paul that we have in the New Testament, we can see that he continued to, to relate to them. But somewhere in the future, they would just hear that he died for the cause of Christ, and that would be it. And they know on this day that that's it. They're not going to see their brother Paul anymore. And so unlike when a wolf departs, there's real sorrow here. There's a gospel goodbye. But this is the legacy left by a Christ-like leader. The legacy of faithful service. Of someone who has laid down their life like Christ for the sheep. And as we follow Christ, we will experience this too. As people from our church community go out to other parts of the world to share the gospel, we will experience these kind of gospel goodbyes. As Brad and Cass from our community head out next year to South Asia, and as others in the future plan to go out from us to take the gospel to places where it hasn't been heard or where the church needs to be strengthened, we'll experience these kind of gospel goodbyes. We've formed a deep fellowship and a partnership in Christ that's like nothing else. It goes deeper than just kind of familial connections. And there'll be goodbyes where we know that we might not see them again. We might not see them again for a long time. But this is part of Christ-like love. This is right. Love takes risks and makes sacrifices. When it comes to the gospel, risk is right when it's for the good of others. And so what do we do with all of this? Well, we're not Paul. And we are not apostles. I guess that's probably the most obvious thing to say. But we are called to make disciples. And more than that, we are called to love others more than ourselves. We are called to take risks for the sake of others. For the good of others. And we have this message that saves lives. This gospel, this truth. And our call is to share it with others. I don't know if you've ever tried to teach kids how to play sport. It's very difficult. And one of the most difficult things initially is just to, just to get them to do something other than follow the ball around the park. But one of the other ones that's difficult is teaching them how to attack when they have the ball. Because oftentimes, the default is towards just sort of what you call parking the bus. That is, this, what feels like the safest thing to do is just to sit really deep in the field and try and protect the goal, to not lose. But of course, you can't win by not losing. That's not how it works. I mean, in football, you can have a draw, which is like, it's like two people losing at the same time, so it's the worst possible result, and that's the best way to think. That's how I teach the kids to think about it. That's not two people winning. That's two people losing a draw. But it's hard to get them to get, to get out of that defensive mindset and to let them know that when you have the ball, you go forward. To have the mindset where you're like, we have the ball, that means we're the ones who are calling the players, we're the ones who are setting what's going on, we're the ones who are actually called to go forward. With the church in a modern city like Sydney, often it's the case that the church acts like it doesn't have the ball, like we're in defensive mode, like we aren't the ones to be on the front foot. But the book of Acts shows us that we have the gospel and the spirit of God. You have the ball. Go out there. But so often we just get in the habit of not doing that. And it's, it's catching, isn't it? And there can be a kind of a... The default will always be towards safety, won't it? And towards not taking risks for the gospel. And in a book, or an essay actually called Risk is Right, uh, a pastor, John Piper, writes this comment. 
He says, There is sometimes a subtle selfishness behind our avoidance of risk-taking. There is a hypocrisy that lets us take risks every day for ourselves, but paralyzes us from taking risks for others on the Calvary road of love. We are deluded and we think that such risk may jeopardize a security that in fact does not even exist. The way I hope to explode the myth of safety and to disenchant you with the mirage of security is simply to go to the Bible and show you that it is right to risk for the cause of Christ. It is right to seek to make much of Christ by taking the risks of love. We are called to take risks to share the gospel. And the reason every year that we do an outreach series is to kind of build into the fabric of church life a time in the year when we're like, right, now is the time to take a risk, to ask someone, to start a conversation, to say to them, hey, would you like to come and hear a message about X, Y, and Z? But it actually takes, it actually means taking a risk. And so here's the challenge that we have for you if you're here and a member and in small groups over this week. The challenge is that coming up on October 15, we start our series, which is asking questions, is there more to life than, and we fill in the blanks over three weeks. Is there more to life than finding the one? Is there more to life than wealth? Is there more to life than just a good time? And the challenge is for everyone here to be praying for one person and to actually just take that small risk and that step of inviting someone along. And the best thing about it of being a part of a small group is that you can share just how it went. You can say, yeah, I messaged, and actually, yeah, they're coming along, or I messaged, and it went disastrously. I mean, how, I don't know how bad it could go wrong, but in our minds, like, you're kind of like, the whole world could fall apart if I just invite someone along to something. But part of doing it together is to build a culture that is normal in the Christian faith to love and serve others and to take risks for their sake. The Paul here says that the model of Christian ministry that he lays out for these elders is that Christ-like love takes risks. And the reason he does it is because it was Christ who set the model. Christ is the one who sacrificed even his own life for us, that we might love in the same way. Look what Paul says when he writes a letter to the Philippian church. In Philippians 2, 1-11, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, on Christ who laid down his life as an exchange for ours, and that this might lead us to lay down our lives for others. We know that our default is towards safety and comfort. But Father, we pray that instead, that our desire would be to share the gospel with those we love and who you have put in our life. May we, like Paul, not shrink back, knowing that we have life indestructible in Christ. 
And may this move us to love like Christ. And Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.